0: Amen. Thank you very much, James and Amy. I want to direct your attention to Psalm 119. So please open your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, please make use of one that's located in the back of the chair near where you are seated. And open to Psalm 119, and I'll draw your attention to verses 17 and 18 this morning as Tony announced earlier we are beginning our Vacation Bible School this evening and I've shared with you before that VBS has a very special place in my heart in June of 1979 I was saved at Vacation Bible School at Clearwater Baptist Church so very very special memories in my mind now like most things Bible schools changed a lot back in the day and those of you that are my age and older can remember that. We would line up outside in two lines and everything was, was graded, I'm sorry, classes one, grades one and two, three and four. And you marched in and you went through all the pledges. And then when it was time to sit down. The pianist played the sit down chord. And it was time to stand. The pianist would play the stand-up chord. And I've always wanted to do an experiment when I'm with the crowd to have Julie play those chords and see who stands. Now, VBS has changed a lot. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing because culture around us has changed. And we want to follow the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Corinthians where he said, I want to be all things to all people so that by any means I may win some. So the issue is how can we best communicate the unchanging truth of God's word to a culture that has changed from the culture I grew up in and the culture you grew up in. The message does not change but what we want to look at is how we can best teach the gospel and plant the seed of the Word of God in the life of each child. This year, the theme is Operation Arctic. Get ready to explore the coolest book on the planet. And the theme verse for the week is Psalm 119, verse 18. Now, each night there will be a, a focus verse that the children will learn and that every lesson will revolve around. But the underlying truth comes from Psalm 119, verse 18. Now, I'm going to step back for just a moment and read verses 17 and 18 out of this chapter. Now, keep in mind Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. But it's divided into 22 divisions. And each division begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that was a a, a mnemonic tool, a way that they could memorize this song. So adults, our assignment for our Vacation Bible School is to memorize Psalm 119. Next week, I'll judge, I'll hold the Bible, and I'll see how you do at quoting it. But it is amazing that this is a psalm that extols the glories of the Word of God. Specifically the Torah, but we're going to see it's applicable to all of God's Word. And it was given in song form. We think how hard it would be to memorize this, but we forget it was sung. Isn't it amazing the power of music to help us retain ideas? And the words of this psalm were to get into the heart of those who sung it, the truth and the power of God's Word. And how important it is that we know His instruction gives life. Follow with me as I read these two verses. Psalm 119, verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let's pray together. Father, We ask for your spirit to work. Our prayer is what the psalmist prays here. Lord, deal bountifully with us that we will live and keep your word. Open our eyes this morning, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things and be transformed by them. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Now, verses 17 and 18 begin with a request that the psalmist has. He begins with the request that every one of us desires. And not only do you and I desire it, but if we are parents, this is a request that we desire for our children. And if we have grandchildren, this is not only something we desire for ourselves and for our children, we desire it for our grandchildren. And that is the request found at the beginning of verse 17, that we would be granted by God a bountiful life. A life that is full of goodness. A life that is is indeed happy. That's what drives all of the decisions that we make. We desire for that which will give us the greatest enjoyment. And so every decision we make is driven by what we believe at that moment will make us the most happy and give us fulfillment. Now, logic and knowledge can guide our desires. In fact, that's one of the things that we pray as we get into God's Word. Lord, let your Word shape our desires so that we will desire what you want, O God. That's why it's so important that we recognize that the study of God's Word is not about learning facts. But it's about coming to know God so that He will transform our desires because our desires will drive what we decide. That's why we often choose to do that which we shouldn't do. It's not that we lack knowledge. I know that that second donut is not a good thing to eat. And by the third donut, I've forgotten completely about that. It's the desire, isn't it? Oh, I, I know the benefits of exercise, but it's just at the moment I'm so comfortable on the couch. I know that I shouldn't click on that picture. You see, the issue is not knowledge. It's desire. I know that I shouldn't be, be flirting with that, that person at work, but, but I want it, and it, it, it appeals to what we believe will make us happy at that moment. That's why we have to address the issue of desire because that's what's driving our decisions. That's what the world around us camps out on. Every advertisement you see, every commercial that you hear is aimed to answer that desire by saying something you buy, something you possess, some position you have is what will meet the greatest desire of your heart, which is to be ultimately fulfilled. But in the end, those things do not give us fulfillment. It's like looking for a diamond ring at the bottom of a cracker jack box. It's just not there. That's why the psalmist begins by asking God, Lord, you deal bountifully with me. It's an urgent request. It's as if the psalmist has recognized everything in life that he thought would bring him joy has not. So he says, Lord, you deal bountifully with me. Now, it's interesting that the word for bountifully is an agriculture term. It means to ripen. It means to to bring to fruition. It's that the seeds that were planted would bear fruit and be ready, would be ripe, would be good. And I think it's the idea of saying, Lord, you deal bountifully with me by letting me ripen into the person you desire for me to be. A bountiful life is one that is lived according to God's purpose and ripens according to his plan. That's where joy is found. That's why he says, Lord, deal graciously with me. Deal bountifully with me. You know, the U.S. Army uses slogans in its recruiting. For the, since 2006, the slogan has been, Army Strong. From 2001 to 2006, the, the slogan was, Be an Army of One. But I remember the slogan from my childhood. You know what they they use to entice men and women to unite with the army? Unite with the army and be all you can be. This is a prayer saying, Lord, deal graciously with me that I may be all you desire for me to be. Bring fulfillment to my life, O Lord, according to your plan. He recognizes the folly of anything else in the world to bring fulfillment. And he says, Lord, let your purpose ripen within my heart. Now, look in verse 17. Look at the, the result that he desires. Deal bountifully with your servant, that. Now, that word that shows this is the desired result. Lord, let me find and live according to your purpose that I may live and keep your word. The desire is that he will live and obey God's word. The implication is this. If we are not being dealt with bountifully, if we are not living according to God's purpose, we're not really alive. Everything that we think will give life to us is like a mirage. It doesn't fulfill But he says, Lord, you deal bountifully in order that I may live, living according to God's purpose, is life. And notice how it is connected with keeping God's word. Throughout Psalm 119, there is a connection between life and God's word. You cannot have one without the other. A quick survey. Just look at three verses. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. That's the way it's saying, Lord, I'm at death. Give me life according to your word. Look over to verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And give me life in your way. Don't let me look at that which will not give me a bountiful life. Lord, be gracious and let me look to you. And give me life in your ways. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. How do we know of God's way and God's promise apart from his revealed word? And he is connecting the word of God with living. So there is a a cycle we enter into. The word of God gives life. And as we gain life, then we obey and we live according to God's word. It's so important for us to recognize that true living, true life, is only found in God. That's why in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul said that you, speaking to the Ephesus church, speaking to us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were zombies walking around the living dead, but God's grace gives life. And notice the and in verse 17, that and is huge, that I may live and keep your word. Apart from the life that is given to us by God, we cannot obey God's Word, which brings blessing. See, that's the dilemma that Paul had. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So in other words, Paul's reading the Torah. He knows the Torah. He knows how God desires him to live. And he says, Lord, I fail miserably. I can't do it, God. So who can save me from this, Lord? I see how you want me to live, but I can't attain that. It's impossible for me to do it. So he comes to the conclusion. Look in chapter 8. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment so you can follow this. To understand that God gives us life so that we can obey his word. Paul says, your word gives life, but I can't attain your word. I can't live according to it. Romans chapter 8. This very familiar verse, and it's one that we need to take to heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God gives us life through the Spirit so that what God desires of us in the law is met by faith in Jesus Christ. That his righteousness is applied to our lives, therefore we can attain what God desires by faith in Christ. Think of it like this. Now in the summertime, there's track and field events that go on around us. One of the track events that they're all exciting if you really sit down to watch them. But the relay race is particularly exciting. You have four men or four women that want to work in conjunction to bring home the trophy to reach first place. One of the things I like about the relay race is that there can be grace. In other words, if you're not the fastest guy on the second leg, if you've got a good guy running anchor, or a powerfully quick lady running that last leg, and that person wins, the whole team wins. They don't give partial trophies. Well, two-thirds of two-fourths of the team won. If that last person crosses the finish line, the whole team wins. Now I don't know about you, but when I started out holding the baton running my race, I thought I was doing real well. Then before I knew it, sin flew by me, and I was eating its dust. And if that wasn't bad enough, I was still trying to run and sin was beating me. And then all of a sudden, Satan passed me by. And I was eating his dust and I was getting further and further behind knowing I could never catch up and overcome sin and Satan. And about the time I thought, oh, it's really bad, death flew by me on the track. And I was still trying to run, but I could not catch up with sin, Satan, or death. And then when I finally reached the end of my strength and my leg, I handed the baton to Jesus. And Jesus took off running. And Jesus overcame sin. And Jesus passed up Satan. And Jesus defeated death to cross the finish line, running the race on our behalf, that in him we are victorious over death. In him we are victorious over Satan. In him Him. We are victorious over sin. His victory applied to us by faith. And the word of God points us to that truth. That's why he says, Lord, in your word is life. That's why when we read the word, we don't have to despair. We can glory in God who has provided what we need to be obedient. That's why I think the next prayer is so crucial in verse 18. Lord, not only deal bountifully with me, not only help me live according to your purpose that my life will ripen, and I will live and I will keep your word. Lord, verse 18, open my eyes. Open my eyes. There's a connection between the two. When God's grace brings us to life and he's dealing bountifully with us, it means that he must open our eyes. Now this is not a reference to physical blindness this is a reference to spiritual blindness and it's a warning to us that we must depend upon the Spirit of God for the Word to be applied to our lives you see a person can understand the words of the Bible and miss their meaning a person can be amazed by the the beauty of the Word of God And completely miss the beauty of God's glory. It's possible for anyone today that has a computer, whether they be believer or non-believer, to do a lexical study on the word holy. But you can study the word holy and still not be holy. You can study the syntax of Hebrew and Greek sentences and still live your life out of order. We can learn theological truths and still not know the God who has given them to us. So this is a prayer to say, Lord, open my eyes so that I will see wondrous things and know that you are God and be led to be transformed by your grace. Now, to see wondrous things out of the law is not to see some secret code. Now, let me say as kindly and succinctly as I can you will see a lot of books whether it be on Amazon or at your local bookstore that promise here's how to unlock the secret code of the Bible because this author has found out that if you look at every sixth letter of every seventh word you will find out who will win the next election my beloved don't waste your money that's not what it's talking about this is not talking about seeing some secret code or, or just learning Bible trivia. This is coming to see the beauty of God, not just in the Torah, not just in the Old Testament, but in the beauty of who God is all throughout the Scripture. This is God's revelation of Himself. You see, often we fall prey to thinking of the Bible only as a rule book. The Bible much more than that. And let's be honest, thinking of the Bible as a rule book doesn't exactly inspire anyone to read it. I mean, when's the last time you, for your enjoyment, have sat down to read a rule book? Honey, I'm a little bit bored tonight. I was in the mood to read the rules of baseball. Give me the revised edition, please. No. Do you recognize that the majority of the Torah, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is narrative? It's story. You want to see what faith looks like? Read about Abraham. You want to read of God's mercy? Read of the Exodus. You want to read of God's sustaining love? Even to people who rebel against him, look at how he interacts with the children of Israel. Now, are there rules in it? Yes. But those rules point us to God and point us to his grace because the unique nature of the scripture is that it reveals to us God who is God alone. You see, if you look at the Bible as just rule books, you'll find a lot of similarities, for example, between the Scripture and, say, the Code of Hammurabi written around the same time. Not exact, exactly alike, but a lot of similarities. So what wondrous things do we see? We see how God is different from all the gods of this world. You see, the gods of the people surrounding Israel were connected to a specific land. Here's the God of Edom, the God of Moab, the God of Philistia. But here is Yahweh who owns all the lands. But you know what our God has done? He is sovereign over all the lands, but he has connected himself specifically to a people. There is no other God who has done that. The gods of this world are bloodthirsty, vindictive, but the one true God is gracious. The gods of this world are fickle they will bless you one minute and turn on you the next but the one true God is steadfast in his love The gods of this world encourage sin and that sin destroys. But the one true God is righteous and he gives life. The gods of this world hold grudges and do not let go of the past. But the one true God doesn't remember iniquities and doesn't retain his anger forever. He gives hope and a future. These are the wondrous things of God that are revealed to us by his grace. But they all point to one central person. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When it says that Christ is the end, it means that he is the purpose. He is the fulfillment. So as I look at all of this, the wondrous thing that I want to see is who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And to see that Jesus is my hope. When I recognize that God is just and he judges and you read the scripture, you come face to face with that. I can glory in Christ by saying Christ has taken the wrath of God on my behalf. I do not have to fear. When I recognize that God is faithful to his people, I look at Christ and I say, If God before me and he has sent his son to die upon the cross, why do I need to be afraid and fearful that he would leave me? As God deals bountifully with us and gives us life. He opens our eyes to see wondrous things in his word about who he is. And the most wondrous thing of all is Jesus. Now, does that mean that when it comes to the study of the word, that we should just pray, Lord, open my eyes and then put down our verse, our finger on a verse, and say the remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east? Thank you, Lord. No. Taking such an approach is dangerous and will lead to misinterpretation. I encourage you to approach the study of the word like a farmer planting his crops. A farmer will do what he can to ensure that the seed that is planted will grow. He'll hoe, he'll fertilize, but ultimately he is dependent upon that seed and the rain and the grace of God for growth to occur. Approach the study of God's Word in the same manner. Lord, I want to do what I can to understand. Help me to find the point that the author has. Help me to understand it. But Father, growth is up to you. That's why it's very important to recognize that the Word of God is life. That's why it's important for us to dive into it. We get so caught up in everything that we think we have to have and the business of busyness of life that we forget our need for His Word. Eleanor Trump Turnbull was a veteran missionary to Haiti. Now, she didn't work in the urban areas. She worked in the mountains, among the poorest of the poor. She recorded four prayers that they prayed regularly. Listen to these words. Our great physician, your word is like alcohol. When poured on an infected wound, it burns and stings. But only then can it kill germs. If it doesn't burn, it doesn't do any good. Lord, that's your word. Listen to this prayer. Father, we are all hungry baby birds this morning. Our heart mouths are gaping wide waiting for you to fill us. Father, a cold wind seems to have chilled us. Wrap us in the blanket of your word and warm us up. Lord, we find your word like cabbage. As we pull down the leaves, we get closer to the heart. And as we get closer to the heart, it is sweeter. Isn't it amazing? No prayers for prosperity. No prayers for riches. But the prayer that says, Lord, your word is sweet see that brings us to the one crucial thing I I I skipped over it so I could come back to it here at the conclusion notice in verse 17 how the psalmist refers to himself deal bountifully with your servant As you approach the Word of God what is your attitude is it that of a servant who says Speak, Master, for I'm listening. Open up the truth of your word, and I will obey. See, this is a very tightly connected passage. When we have that humble attitude and we say, Lord, let my life blossom, that I may live according to your purpose and obey your word. Open my eyes that I can see wondrous things in your law. The heart that desires to obey will be blessed by God. So I call for you today to make that choice. And if you're wavering, to say, Lord, help me to make that. Lord, help me. We all face choices. According to a Columbia researcher by the name of Sheena Ainger, She said the average person makes 70 decisions every day. Now, personally, I think that's low. I feel like I make 70 decisions before breakfast. But if you go with 70, that's 25,500 decisions a year. And over 70 years, that's over 1.7 million decisions. That's life. The choices you make, set your course. So this morning I ask you, will you set that course? Will you make that choice to make this prayer a part of your life? I don't want to second, settle for what second, Lord? Deal bountifully with me. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of invitation.